Well, we are taking a break out of the Gospel of John for four or five weeks. And uh, the topics that we are, that I have chosen, really have to do with topics on discipleship, the Christian life, but topics we don't talk much about, like the fear of God. And now, for the second morning in a row, discipline. And we've entitled this last week and this week, The Blessing or the Blessings of Discipline. And we learned last week that there are five areas of discipline that we find in scriptures. Last week, out of Hebrews chapter 12, we learned about God disciplines us, and we learned a little bit about parental discipline, okay? This morning, we're going to look at the other three or kind of put them together, that come, and I'm going to use Matthew 18 for that very purpose, and that is self-discipline, and we'll probably park and spend most of our time here, but we're also going to talk for a few minutes about brotherly discipline, which you will see okay, in Matthew 18, and it's in the broader context of church discipline, which is what Matthew 18 is all about. So let's go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew 18. We're just going to read verses 15 through 20 together. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, and stand with me, and we will read together verses 15 through 20 on this beautiful topic called discipline. (gasps) Makes you cringe, doesn't it? Let 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 me spark your interest. Where there is no discipline, there's a lack of love. Oh, let's read. Let's read. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that you would give us a greater appetite for the kingdom of heaven by giving us a greater appetite for the king of heaven. To walk in our Lord's ways, to learn his precepts, the desire for his rule, his law, his rule and reign in our lives because we want to follow him. God, we are convinced by your word that we are called to be disciples, followers. And in a lost and fallen world, in these bodies that don't want to cooperate with the old man hanging on, we need some discipline in all forms. And so, Lord God, not to be strict, not to be stringent, but to show forth the glory of Christ in his gospel. That's why we need self-discipline, Father. It's a good thing. It's a grand thing. It's biblical. It's, it's what the Father wants of his sons and daughters because you call us to exalt the Savior, the head of our body. So God, with that in mind, help us to plunge into your word this morning. And, 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 and Father, as we do that, we ask, Holy Spirit, that your word would be etched upon our hearts more deeply. It would be rooted in God that we would, we would be men and women of the word who don't just want to be hearers but doers. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, self-discipline is a necessary growth in personal holiness. Let me say it again. Self-discipline is necessary for growth in personal holiness. In fact, personal holiness is largely dependent upon and determined by our progress in self-discipline. Are are you with me? What I want to do for a couple of minutes is tell you how how important this subject is, and you're going to find us a subject we don't even hardly talk about anymore. However, self-discipline, okay, or just the word discipline has fallen on hard times. It's not very popular in our culture, is it? I mean, you might hear it a little bit in 
in conversations dealing with parents with their children. But even that's become less and less, okay? You don't hear about it much anymore, even in that context, much less other contexts. In our society today, it's insistent, uh, 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 and, and resistant because they think it just shackles them. You know, it, it's not popular. It's just something that I don't need. It, it, it stringents me. You know, it, it, it confines me, and, and I don't like it. And we even know it's unpopular among Christians today, isn't it? I mean, Christians today, when they hear the word discipline or self-discipline, they cry out, foul, foul. It's legalism. It's legalism. Or, 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 wait a minute, I have, I have liberties as a Christian, and what, these, what this self-discipline you're talking about does, it, 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 it cuffs me in my Christian liberties. And so they defend their rights and Christian liberty and, and by crying out legalism. But these free-spirited Christians, so to speak, uh, maintain that discipline is like a straitjacket. You know, self, it's just a straitjacket that, that hinders my freedom in Christ. Let me say this. Many of those Christians have so abused their Christian liberties as a result of no self-discipline that they virtually have none. Does that make sense? And the cry for Christian liberty and Christian freedom and their, and their cry saying, oh, it's nothing but legalism, they basically have abused their liberty and have no self-discipline whatsoever. And what happens is, is they swing the pendulum to the opposite direction. Let me show you this. Give me a little simple little illustration. Help put it a little bit in context. Here we are. You like that? That's me, you, okay? Here's kind of like a little pendulum that swings back and forth. What do we typically do? We swing back between license, my freedom to do whatever I want to do, which is really a gross misunderstanding of Christian liberty, okay? But then license, the other is what? Legalism. You've seen me do this before in the past, okay? The balance is right here. That's what I'm aiming at when we talk about self-discipline. And I'm going to be up front with you, what drives self-discipline, what drives every form of discipline, all five, all five, put the cap down, is this. What is that word? Love. Love is what keeps us balanced. We don't go to this extreme. We don't go to this extreme. We don't go to license or legalism. But it's out of a love for Christ, out of a love for one another, that we pursue a disciplined life, self-discipline. Okay? So I was hoping this would kind of put it a little bit in perspective for us. Let me go on with this, an illustration here. This, this, these believers that are cry liberty, okay, and that self-discipline is really shackles me. They, they, they so abuse their liberty in Christ, they swing this direction and have no self-discipline whatsoever. What this does, it prolongs their maturity. Or let me say this, it doesn't prolong maturity. Their immaturity, okay? It prolongs their immaturity. And, and they leave little resistance against sin, Okay? A little resistance even for temptation. And for some in that predicament, it even gets worse. They fall, therefore, into sinful habits. All because of a lack of self-discipline. It's like a slow snowball effect. And if that's not bad enough, there's no brotherly love next to There's no brother or sister in Christ who has the love to pull them inside and say, hey, you need to stop doing this. And if that's not bad enough, you have churches that don't exercise church discipline. Now, here's where I'm going. In that context, which is typical, you have believers sitting, you have people 
who profess to be Christians sitting in the pew, and we have no idea whether they are or not. What I have done is just walk through these three areas of discipline. Self-discipline, the lack thereof. The lack of brotherly discipline, like when you loving one another. Part of loving one another is when you see a brother or sister erring, you go to them lovingly because you know it's hindering their fellowship with Christ. It's, and it's just not right. You love them enough. There's no excuse not to go to them when you love them. And I'm not, no, I'm not talking about little nitpicking sins. Okay, we're, we're not going there. Oh, stop right there. Don't you praise the Lord that he doesn't nitpick every time you sin. I'd be flat on my back 24-7. So we're not talking nitpicking, okay? We all make mistakes. You know, we all commit little things. I'm not talking about every time you have a bad thought or something like that. But basically we're talking about when sins become a habitual pattern, okay? Then a brother or sister needs to step in. So that tells you one thing right there. How important are, is building relationships in the body of Christ? How important, therefore, is it to become a member of a church? Just that alone, to have that commitment with other brothers and sisters in Christ who know that they will love you enough that they see you going astray, they're going to come up to you and say, hey, come here for a minute. I love to have guys around me like that. I need it. So do you. But then sometimes that person won't listen to the individual or a couple people going to them. And so what happens, then you get the whole church involved. And that's really is what Matthew 18 goes to, to that extreme. And then sometimes a person doesn't even listen to the church, but you're still loving them. Even, here, here listen to this, we think, oh, no, then we just cast them out of the church, and that's just mean and ugly. No, that's loving. Because you're pushing them. You're pushing them, right? You, you, you're pushing towards restoration, The whole goal is you want them to repent, to confess their sins, and be restored. Why? Because we love them. And if you really love somebody, you never want anyone walking around just professing to know Jesus without showing it, or at least wanting to show it. Because even when we want to show it, we still what? Mess up, right? We still sin. So that's the big picture. This is why we need to talk about discipline. Because the absence of discipline in all three forms we're talking about this morning, whether it be self-discipline or the brotherly discipline or church discipline, it's detrimental to our spiritual growth. The absence of those things, it's just, that's why the church is in the predicament that it's in today. I really believe that. It's detrimental to the church's testimony. It's testimony of Christ. But let me add one more thing, and I said it at the very beginning, and it's this word right here, love. The absence of discipline is also the absence of true care and true love for one another. It's surface. It's surface love. If you see a brother or sister going down a certain path, and you know it's wrong, and you know it doesn't measure up with Scripture, you know it hinders their walk with Christ, and you know it hinders and stifles their spiritual growth, how can we just sit there and watch them go? Well, it's a lack of love. So, let's begin with the first one, self-discipline. Isn't this exciting? All right. You're probably asking, well, wait a minute, preacher, where's that one in Matthew 18? Are you ready? Okay, this one's really an argument from silence because it ain't there. Okay, you're probably asking, where is that in our passage this morning? Well, it, it, it is, it's absence that is so glaring. A lack of self-control results into sinful lifestyle. So when you read in verse 15, if your brother sins, the assumption is he is lacking self-discipline or self-control, and that's what got him into trouble to begin with. Are you with me? See, just, that one's just kind of, for me, is kind of common sense there. The context is if your brother sins. It's an indication right there of a lack of self-control, of self-discipline. So when a brother or sister falls into habitual sin, it's due to a lack of self-discipline. We're going to get to what that looks like in a minute. But let's look at the word dis- discipline for a minute. Okay, let's do that. It comes from the Greek word inkratia. That made a lot of sense, didn't it? The root of which means power and control 
or lordship, power and lordship. So self-discipline means what? To exercise power over oneself. So that's what we're talking about when we use the term self-discipline, exercising power over oneself. Well, why do I need to do that? Because every day you're in spiritual warfare. That's why. Let's just be real here. You don't war against people, but you war against flesh and blood. And, and I mean, not against flesh and blood, but your own old nature. And so every day you've got to subdue it. You know, that ten- t- tendency to want to go think bad about that person. The tendency to want to be selfish. The tendency to do what I want to do instead of what the Lord wants to do. We all have those tendencies, don't we? They're still there. The old man did not run away. Oh, I wish he did, but he hasn't. So the word discipline comes from the Greek word that means at its root power or lordship. That means to exercise power over oneself. It is the ability to keep oneself under control or to master oneself. To master one's own desires, own thoughts, own actions, and own words. It means to master those four areas of your life. Why? Why? You go, okay, oh, you're just talking so much. This is hard. Well, if you struggle in it, if it becomes hard, then look to Jesus because it's out of a love for him. As your love for him grows, your desire for self-discipline grows. I can't say that enough how self-discipline is so interconnected with a love for Christ and a love for others. It's also an akin to Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, self-control, self-control. Let me, let me read these verses in Galatians. Turn with me there, if you will. Galatians chapter 5. The problem is stated in verses 13 through 15. So there's real life going on here, okay? Paul's just not pinning something out of the blue. He's addressing certain issues, and that issue is listed in 13, 14, and 15. But you are called to freedom, brethren. Hey, there's that Christian liberty right there. He says this only. Do not turn your freedom, your liberty in Christ, your freedom from sin into an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't turn it into license to do whatever you want to do. You are not freed to do whatever you want to do. You are freed from sin, but the reality is you are under a new master now to do what he wants you to do. Okay? And that's why we need self-discipline. But we'll go on. So he, he spells it out. So, but through love, serve one another. Why would Paul write that? Because they were lacking in that area. They weren't serving one another. They were running over each other, actually. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15 kind of fleshes it out more what's going on. If you bite and devour one another, why is he writing that there? Because there was relational problems. They weren't getting along. They were getting very prideful. And they were beginning to bite and devour one another. Take care that you are not consumed by one another. Now, in verses Verse 16, you have the solution, the command, but I say walk by the Spirit. In verse 16, so he states the problem, 13, 14, and 15. Verse 16, he gives the solution. Here it is, walk by the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, which is specifically described in verses 13 through 15, specifically 15. So this is not necessarily individual sin he's dealing with. This is relational sins, Okay? He's dealing with the treatment of one another. But now in 17 through 24, those verses, he gives us an explanation. The word for, verse 17. For the flesh says his desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. That's why you struggle. That's why I struggle. This is a daily struggle. This is an hourly struggle. It's a moment-by-moment struggle. This is why... You have a hard time on earth. That's why everything doesn't go according to plan. That's why we still, as Christians, as saints of God, as adopted children, we still find ourselves, what? Sinning now and then. This is spiritual warfare. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You don't defeat your flesh. You don't deal with this spiritual warfare by first and foremost going to the law but by going to Christ, right? By being filled with the Spirit, 
Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Why? Because the Spirit's going to lead me to obey the law. Pretty simple, isn't it? We don't go to a cold law anymore. We go to the Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean we're anti-law. What it means is we go to the law covered with the blood of Christ. So now I can face the law, even when I break the law. Because with a new heart, as a new creature, I do want to obey the law. Does that make sense? Now it goes to the deeds in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. He gives this list, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And notice these are deeds he lists in verses 19, 20, and 21. They are deeds. And at the end of verse 21, those who practice such things, those who habitually, this is their lifestyle, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying this, th- those who do this, those, this is their lifestyle, they're unbelievers. They're not, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's equivalent to the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter which term you use. Here it's the kingdom of heaven. They're not saved. What is Paul saying? This is not you. You're purchased. You're bought. You're, you're to be led by the Spirit, not by your flesh. When you're led by your flesh, this is what's going to happen. 19, 20, and 21. 22. But, contrary to the deeds, there's the fruit of the Spirit. And look at this list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and there's the word, self-control. Wow. And notice it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's generated by the Holy Spirit. You get that? It's a gift of God. It's fruit. In other words, self-control or self-discipline, synonymous terms, is something God wants to produce in your life. You know that now, today, if you never knew it before. It's not a matter of legalism. It's not a matter of license. It's a matter of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's If you really want your life to count for Christ, it's going to take a degree of self-discipline for people to know who you are in Christ, for you to reflect and to show it. That's what we're talking about here. It's not self-generated. It's a work of grace. That's why it's a fruit. However, I want you to write down 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And if you'd like, we can go there as well. Because Peter comes along and says, I want you to supply self-control. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was generated by God, so I don't have to do anything. Seems to be what Paul's saying. And Peter writes, I want you to supply it to your faith. Let's read that. Oh, but we can't read that until we back up a few verses and understand the context. Look at verses 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in knowledge of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has given, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. When you got saved, the moment of your conversion... God at that moment gave everything you need to be sanctified, to live the Christian life. God didn't forget anything. He adopted you, you're his child, and he gave you everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, through the gospel. So you're lacking nothing. You and I lack nothing for the Christian life. All these graces he has given us to help us to walk on a daily basis in fellowship with him. He has given to us. That's powerful. Verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So not only has he given us things for today, he's also given us a promise of the future. So we exercise those things he's given us today because we know the future he has for us. That's why John will come along and say, purify yourself today because he's pure. And, and that's the context in 1 John chapter 3 where, where John is saying, because you know you're going to be with him one day, that's your future, that's your hope. 
Work on being that way now. Don't wait till he comes. And, and, and Peter says, he's giving you everything to do that today. The problem is we don't pick it up. What are some of those things? The Bible? Prayer? How about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? How about the church? Wow. Communion. That, th- those things that God gives us for the purpose of making progress in, in godliness. Now, verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence. The word diligent makes, means make every effort. Make every determination you can. Muster up in your faith, supply moral excellence, and your moral excellence, knowledge, and your knowledge, self-control. There's that word again, self-control. You're wondering when I get to it, I know. So no one gets a fruit of the Spirit, knowing that it's not self-generated, knowing it's a work of grace, that it's something the Christian, therefore, wants, desires, wants to have in his life, her life. So he asks for it. It's really called application. Whoa. This is beyond the Bible study. This is beyond the exegesis, you know, the looking up the Greek and the Hebrew. This is, this is what happens beyond the little Bible study you belong to. This self-control is something we, it, it leads to the application part. That's why it's so difficult to talk about self-control and self-discipline, I believe. Because it's really talking about, how am I going to apply this in my life? Wow. Notice verse 8, for if these qualities, self-control being one of these qualities, right? For if these qualities are yours and are what? Increasing. There's a comfort in increasing. And the comfort is this, I've not arrived yet. I'm never going to be totally, perfectly under self-control, never. But I want to strive to be more like that, more that way. Why? Because that's my Savior. God's goal for you is Jesus. God's goal for you is to be like him. And we know it's not going to happen until we get to heaven. But meanwhile, we, 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 we practice self-discipline because we want to get there. And the more we're like Jesus, the more people around us are going to see that we're different than them. And we, and we stir them up to ask about the hope that is in us. And self-discipline, self-control is a big part of this. Listen to this, for if these qualities of yours are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. Turn that around. If these qualities are not in you or they're not increasing, then you become useless. A believer, a child of God who's exercising self-control is the child of God God wants to use for his kingdom. If not, maybe you're just, you're, you're, you're over here. Put over on the side. You're not used by God because you, you don't have this self-control. Does that make sense? I mean, when I was studying this the last couple of weeks, the, the number one thing in my mind was, how am I going to bridge this with the everyday walk? How am I going to bridge this with the love of God and what he has for us? How am I going to bridge this self-control, re- really show you the need for it? This, this, this topic of discipline that we don't even talk about much. But here it is. Here it is. It's obviously something we should desire, want to ask for, apply and practice because it is the fruit of the Spirit. Let me show you some other verses. Just listen to this. It is to be prioritized over physical discipline. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Let me read that. <clears throat> to be prioritized this. Self-discipline, self-control is to be prioritized. Listen to this. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself. There it is, self-discipline. Discipline yourself for what? For purpose of godliness. Wow. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. I want to stop right there. Notice it doesn't say no profit. Little. Physical discipline. So, right? Physical discipline, it's, it's good for you. It's good for your body. You need to do that a little bit. 
but it's not the priority. Spiritual self-discipline is for the purpose of godliness, and it's of great profit compared to bodily discipline. Why? Because it holds the promise for the present life and also the life to come. Physical discipline is only good for now. It'll do you no good in heaven. But the discipline spoken of here, the self-discipline, the self-control, is for the purpose of godliness, and it'll benefit you now. It'll benefit you now and when you get to heaven. Wow. It was exemplified by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9, and that's the context of the use of our Christian liberties. But I want you to note what he says here. 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but only one who receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises, there's the word, self-control in all things. He's comparing. He's using an analogy. He's giving really an illustration here. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath. They do it to receive the gold medal or a bronze or silver, but we an imperishable one. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. When exercising self-discipline and self-control, you've got an aim. You're aiming at something. You're not just doing it for the sake of doing it. Our aim is Christ. Our aim is what's at the end of our marathon race, and that's Jesus waiting for us with open arms. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Have you ever watched a boxing match? Some guys are so undisciplined, they just start, they're not connected. But after a couple of rounds, their arms get tired. What happens when your arms get tired in a boxing match? You leave yourself wide open to get punched. Because they're not disciplined. It's not just how many punches, it's when you throw it. Same thing with the Christian life. If you're undisciplined, you're going to get weary. You're going to get wore out. Your guard's going to be down, and you'll be more susceptible to sin, to get hit by the punch of sin. You get it? So Paul says, I'm I'm like a boxer, a boxer that has aim. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air but I discipline my body. There's self-control in verse 25, self-discipline in verse 27, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. What a perspective. This body, I'm a new creature in Christ, but I'm still in this body. I want to make this body my slave so it serves Jesus. That's exactly what Paul's talking. Is that our attitude? Wow. And he brings it to his context so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. But you can use this in your context, right? So we see that this self-discipline, that this self-control is, is, is fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. is to be prioritized over physical discipline. Paul writing to Timothy is exemplified here by Paul in his ministry in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, it's required of leaders in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, where it says elders must be sensible, just devout, self-controlled. But I came across this wonderful illustration in James chapter 3. Turn there with me for a moment. Because he gives two illustrations of self-control without using the word self-control, without using the word self-discipline, and you're going to see it right off. The two illustrations are this, the bit of a horse's mouth and the rudder of a ship. Now, when you look at the bit of a horse's mouth, it's about maybe this big. It fits right here, right? Over this big, strong animal. The rudder of a ship. When you look at the whole picture of how huge a ship is, a luxury liner, and you look back at the rudder, it's a very small thing, isn't it? Those are the two things that James uses It teaches about how necessary it is to control our tongue, to control the words that come out of our mouth. Verse 3 of chapter 3 of James. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. (laughs) Look at the ships over there on the shore. 
You know what they're like. You know how big they are. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a force is set aflame by such a small fire? And he goes on to say, what comes out of our mouth can destroy or bless. And we need to control it like the bit of a horse or a rudder on a ship. We need to exercise self-control and self-discipline with the words that come out of our mouths. Isn't that beautiful? Just using those two pieces of equipment. It clearly teaches us about self-control and self-discipline when it comes to our tongues. So, it's the character trait that is self-control and self-discipline that ultimately produced by God, yes. Okay, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Yet we are to actively be involved and engaged in supplying it and exercising it. Okay? It's our responsibility. But what happens when we fail? When we stop training ourselves for the purpose of godliness, we get spiritually lazy or flabby is what happens. And instead of resisting sinful desires, we then fall into them. Sinful patterns develop. And at that point, brotherly discipline becomes necessary. This is where relationships in the body of Christ become so important. Because they step in and say, wait a minute. You've gotten weak and flabby. You've not been exercising self-control. What does that look like, by the way? How about this? Bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That takes self-discipline. Are you with me? Every day, sinful thoughts come into our minds. Every day. None of us are excluded. I don't care what anybody says. I've run across people who say, I haven't sinned in a long time. I have. There's there's perfectionism out there. It's It's a false, bad theology. What about make no provision for the flesh? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. That's an exercise of what? Self-discipline. That's why we get into the Word. Not just so I can grow in knowledge. I think too many Christians are just, they're happy when they gain the knowledge and they go no further. They see no necessity for self-discipline or self-control. But that knowledge is to teach me where I need to self-discipline, why I need it, and where I need it in my life, which is basically everywhere. But love of Christ drives this whole thing. So, without the self-discipline, a sinful pattern develops, and I need my brother to step in and call me out, to confront me. Confrontation is good! It was the last time you heard it with such enthusiasm. <laughs> but when you see a brother or sister in sin, confrontation is good. It is holy. It is loving. It is caring. What we're talking about is, is the attitude in which we give it, the attitude in which we approach that person. Listen, listen. When you came to Christ, God confronted you with your sin. Or you would never come to Christ. Right? There's too many people who became Christians and they just think everything's just fine. They were never confronted with their sins. And that's why they've never repented. Why did you repent? Because you were confronted with your sin. That means God lovingly, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through another person, shared the gospel with you, the Spirit convicted you from within, a person from without sharing the gospel, and you were confronted with your own guilt, with your own sin, and God's wrath, and God's judgment. Are you listening? That is the love of God. Somehow, somewhere along the line, we have taken what I just said and separated that from the love of God. That's not loving. That's a lie. It is. Man, you see that conflict on the cross. You see the wrath of God and the love of God on the crucified Christ. 
you have the love of God on the cross, but you also have his wrath being poured out on his son because that is a public picture of how much God abhors and hates sin. Listen to these verses, speaking about how we love one another by confronting one another. Listen to this, Luke 17, 3, be on your guard, Jesus speaking to his disciples. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's confrontation. And it's if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. I love that. James 5, 19 through 20, my brethren, if any one of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, you've, you've won your brother. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. There's a parallelism between being a friend and being a brother. A friend, in other words, is like a brother. He is there with you through thick and thin. He will confront you because he loves you when he sees that you've got a sinful pattern going on in your life. He's not just going to hide it. He's not going to go, I'm just going to ignore it. That is the most unloving thing we could ever do. Proverbs 15.32 says, He who neglects discipline despises himself. If someone's trying to confront you with your sin and you're ignoring them, you're despising yourself. But he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. But I want to go to Galatians 6. Go to Galatians 6, 1, if you will. Because Galatians 6 has to do with the attitude in which we confront. The attitude in which we confront. And I love what it does in chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 1. He begins, first of all, by saying, brother, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, that means you see it. You're not guessing. You're not saying, well, maybe he is or isn't. No, you got to see it, right? You're not guessing. You're not God. You got to see it. You got to be a witness to it, okay? So if you're caught, notice the first thing he does. He says, I want you to know the goal right up front. Restore. That's the goal. He's, first thing he does is he, sets, he gives you the goal first. And then he says, then the attitude. So when you confront, when you address sin in a brother or sister's life, you have to do it with the goal in mind of restoration. That's because we love them. That's because we care about them. We care about their walk with Christ. We care about their relationships in the body of Christ. We care about their testimony. We actually care about their souls. Everyone in the church is to have a pastoral concern for each other. Are you, it's not just something relegated to elders and pastors. You're all to have this caring, pastorly kind of attitude one for another. That's loving. It's not just something, oh, it's only for the elders. We should be the examples and illustrate that. But it's for all to have one with another. But I love this. I'm thinking over this, pouring over verse 1. I'm going, you know, the first thing he does after giving the context of one being caught in trespass, you who are spiritual, doesn't mean perfect. The first thing he does is, here's the goal, restore. And then he says, in a spirit of gentleness, the attitude. You're not abrupt. You don't want to run over them. So when you confront, you've got to do it with gentleness. You don't want to use abrasive words. You want your words to be seasoned with grace. You should spend hours or or days often on praying about, God, how do you want me to address this person? i got to wait for the right timing. I don't want to wait too long. But I also want to use the words that are honoring to you and that will bless them. I want to draw them in, not push them away. So there's a spirit of gentleness there. Tell them you love them. That's your motive. Tell them your goal. That's your purpose. And do it with the right attitude because you want to woo them back to Christ. Right? Wow. G. 
gentleness. And that means meekness. And that doesn't mean weak. It's really power under control. You're a stallion. But you're a stallion who does not want to run over that person. So you're exercising self-control in the process of approaching that person and talking to that person. What helps me to maintain this gentleness? By putting your own life into perspective, the next phrase, looking to yourself. Wow. Looking to yourself. In other words, but by the grace of God, there go I. I'm a sinner just like my brother over here that I love so much. And I've blown it in my life. And now I'm approaching him. That's a scary thing because I don't want to come across as being holier than thou. I don't want to be, come across as being his judge. But I want to come across as being his best friend. And this is what best friends in the body of Christ do. Yet they do it with the right attitude. They realize their own weaknesses. And I like this, looking to yourself. The word looking to means you're very diligent. And you're attentive to your own life, your own lifestyle. You're very in tune with your own life and the reality of your own sin. You're very in tune to that. And that's humbling. And therefore, you go with meekness and gentleness to that person, knowing that you're no different than they are. I love what Paul's doing here. It's beautiful. It's so real, isn't it? But what if they don't listen? Well, going back to Matthew 18, you get another brother or two and you go at it again. You confront them again, loving with the same attitude, by the way. The attitude never changes. This attitude of Galatians 6, 1 and 2 never changes, okay? So here's the scenario. Are you with me? Just listen. We're going to kind of begin to wrap this up. You got a brother or a sister who doesn't exercise self-discipline for a long period of time, and so they get spiritually flabby and tired, and they let their guard down, and what happens? Sin comes knocking on the door. They become more susceptible, not just to sin once, but a habitual patterns of sin to creep in. And, and, and hopefully they have someone in the church they have a relationship with you. Hopefully it's like three or four people that, they, that, they, that, they will, that will love them enough to go to them and confront them with it. Sad to say in too many churches, too many people don't have these kind of relationships. So we don't even get to step two, much less step three. Let's just say it's there. So a brother or sister goes to them. And they've witnessed it. And they say, God, I see this in your life. And it's, 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 it's sinful. And I love you. And you know better than this. You know what God's word says. And I'm not coming to you because I'm here and you're down here. Uh, and, and to be spiritual, to restore you, doesn't mean that I'm, 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 I'm more mature than you or anything. It, it, it simply means that I'm like you. And there's times I've let my guard down. But right now, I haven't. And, and by the way, next year, things could be turned around, right? God forbid, but things could be turned around. I could be the one that let my guard down, and my brother's been restored, and he's getting stronger, and then I fall, and I'm going to want him to come to me the way I went to him. This is family, folks. I can't say that big enough, more than enough. This is simply the family of God. That's what's being described here. But then they don't listen to that person, so they go get a couple more. And we see that in Matthew 18. If you want to go back to our main text. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, that's that one person, take it one or two more with you. Establish, reaffirm what's going on there, that they need to repent and turn from whatever they're doing. That's habitual. We're not nitpicking. We're not talking about every little sin, okay? We're not doing that to one another. No, 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 I will rebuke you if you start meddling in someone's life and get nitpicky. That's not what we have here. This is like an immorality a, or sins that's really damaging the body of Christ. An immoral sin, you know, like broken relationships, broken marriages. It's, a, it's like adultery, fornication. It's like gossip. It's like fire. It starts to destroy a church. Those are the things that you, you rebuke, that you really confront head on. The big things, we call them. Not the little, little things especially if they're not patterns. But what if they don't listen to the two or three witnesses? 
and you tell it to the church. Now, I would inject something right here. Somewhere in here, you've got to include the elders. When Jesus said this, the church hasn't been established. Leadership had not been established, but now that it is, you need to bring the elders in along with this as guidance, as help, right? Before you tell it to the church. Never tell it to the church without the elders. They will help. We'll be praying. We'll be talking. We could step in. We'll make sure that you've dotted every I. We'll make sure that you've been extremely patient and long-suffering in the process. This process, by the way, can last for months. This is not a quick fix, folks. This is a love that endures. This is long-suffering love. We're not quick to do this. But even if that fails, and they ignore what you're saying, what the witnesses are saying, what the church is saying, then you still, with the attitude of Galatians 6, 1 and 2, give them over. You're still doing it because you love them. You don't, you don't get to verse 17. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to leave and listen, I'm talking too fast. Forgive me. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Even then, you do it with the attitude of Galatians 6. Even then, you love that person. You're not hating them. You're not even giving up on them. You're hoping that that step will be the straw that breaks their back and brings them back to the church in repentance. That's the goal the whole way through. Why? Let me wrap it up by saying this. Because we love one another. That's why. Because we care for each other's soul. Because we care for Christ. This is his body. Not, this is not Jim Pittman's church. This is not your church. I know we say that, and I understand how we mean that. But ultimately, this is Christ's church. We are his. That's why. We're family. We're spirit-generated family. To fail to admonish an erring brother or sister is to fail to care and love on them, period. May God bless his word this day. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. As we sing, may we sing with a love in our hearts for you and for each other. A love that has no bounds. A love that does not fear. But a love that perseveres regardless of the situation in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.